Several years ago, the American theologian David Bentley Hart took it upon himself to produce a new translation of the New Testament. Uh, Hart is uh, an exceptional theologian, and he is a brilliant writer. So as one might imagine, his translation is a worthwhile investment of both money and time. But something else that recommends it is the introductory essay that he includes with the volume. There, amongst other topics, he confesses how he, great theologian that he is, now, only now, after going through the work of examining the text closely, of translating them carefully, meticulously, only now does he truly understand just how strange the early church really was. As he worked, he says, he was struck by how urgently they wrote. He realized anew just how odd they must have seemed to their neighbors. An association of men and women, he writes, guided by faith in a world-altering revelation and hence in values, almost absolutely inverse to the recognized social, political, economic, and religious truths, not only of their age, but of almost every age of human culture. Take, for instance, the early church's relationship to death. The beating heart at the center of the early church's life was the belief that their leader, their Lord, Jesus Christ, whom they knew had been arrested, mocked, tortured, and crucified, had risen bodily from the grave and had therefore secured their own resurrection to life everlasting if and when they should die themselves. Because of this, it seems, the earliest Christians simply were not afraid of death. Think, for example, of the deacon Stephen, who prays for his persecutors even as he's being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Or think about Paul and Silas, who, finding themselves miraculously freed, voluntarily return to their jail cell as an act of charity towards their terrified jailer. or go beyond the stories of Scripture. In the second century, a young man in Egypt named Origen saw his father being arrested and taken away to be executed for the crime of being a Christian, and he tried to run out and join him, but he was not quick enough. 
In the third century in modern day Tunisia, a plague broke out during which the Christians of that area made a name for themselves by stepping in and nursing the sick and the dying, and therefore the contagious, when those people's pagan loved ones had abandoned them out of fear. But it goes even further than this. For instance, around the year 156, in a town that's on the east coast of what we now call Turkey, the leader of the local church was arrested and executed. After the authorities burned his body on a funeral pyre, the Christians in that community went and sifted through the ashes in order to find his bones. They collected them so that every year on the anniversary of his death, they would be able to gather at his graveside and bear witness to his life and his faith. In another part of the Roman Empire, the local governor actually got so upset by this practice that he decided to make a law banning Christians from gathering and celebrating at the graves of their dead. What were they doing there that upset him so badly? Were they remembering those whom they had lost? I would say almost certainly. Were they giving thanks for the witness that they gave in life and for the time that they shared together? Surely they must have been. However, I want to submit to you that neither one of those truly explains the actions of that governor. And I think I can explain what they might have been doing instead. So far this morning, I have told stories that span the breadth of the Mediterranean world, just about from its far east to its far west. But I want to tell you one more story from right in the middle of it. A story from Rome itself. Take a quick minute and look at the artwork that Lorraine has printed on the front of our order of worship. It's a photograph of a fresco from one of the ancient catacombs beneath the city of Rome. For those who may not be familiar, catacombs are essentially mass graves. They are passageways dug deep under the earth where niches have been carved out of the walls, one on top of the other, for the burial of the dead. As the years went on, the passageways would have been extended, so the catacombs would have progressed ever deeper down into the earth. While Rome's catacombs would not have been exclusively Christian, it's clear that the Christians of that city had a significant presence there, and we know that largely because of all of the artwork that they left down there. Some of the artwork down there, and the catacombs are still there. They can be toured if anybody is looking for a nice summer vacation. 
But some of the artwork down there is among the oldest surviving Christian images that we have, and many of them are quite beautiful. This one, however, this one was chosen this morning for a different reason. It's not very colorful, and it isn't particularly well preserved, but if you look, you can still make out the scene. It's a group of people sitting around a table with what appears to be a very meager meal set out before them. Nothing more than two fish and five loaves of bread. Meager, except for two things. The first is that two fish and five loaves of bread, if you'll recall, are exactly what Jesus had when he fed the 5,000 in the wilderness. And secondly, this particular fresco doesn't appear just anywhere within the Roman catacombs. Instead, it was painted on the central arch overlooking a chapel that had been carved out, hollowed out, in the midst of one of the catacombs' passageways. It seems, in other words, that the early Christians wouldn't just visit the graves of their dead, but that those graves would actually become places of worship, and more than that, as illustrated in the image in this fresco. More than that, it seems that it was actually in and amongst these graves that they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. Like I said at the beginning, the earliest Christians had a peculiar relationship with death one that the world around them found awfully unsettling. I mean, it would be one thing to go and tour the catacombs today after they've been emptied out and they are well lit with electric light bulbs. It would have been something else altogether to spend time down there when the shelves were full of the dead and the only light came from the flicker of oil lamps. And it would have been something of a completely different sort to gather down there for a celebration and a meal. Unless, that is, you believe that the location itself suits the celebration and the meal. In our John text this morning, Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. The bread which comes down from heaven so that one might eat of it and never die. I am the living bread, Jesus says. I am the living bread come down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. You and I know that this passage in John 6 is foreshadowing. 
that before it is all said and done, Jesus will, in fact, give his disciples a meal centered on bread and cup, body and blood. And he will promise them, according to the Gospels, that they will all share this meal again with him in the kingdom. That they will all share this meal together. Not just the disciples there in the upper room, but the first readers of these texts and all of us who have come afterwards. And he promises them that they will share this meal, body and blood, bread and cup. That the meal that you and I will partake in here in a moment is an extension of the feast of the kingdom. The bread come down from heaven, as Jesus says here in John. The same bread, the same meal, the same communion. Effectively, the same table. Which goes a long way, I think, towards helping us understand why those earliest Christians might celebrate communion down in the catacombs. In a very real sense, they didn't believe that they were doing this surrounded by dead people. Because death had been conquered. In truth, they seemed to believe that they were doing it surrounded by people who were alive but on another shore and celebrating it with them, even if just out of sight. In a moment, you and I will have the opportunity to do the same. And to our neighbors, such an act would likely seem exceedingly strange. But to us, and especially on this day as we gather and remember and give thanks for all those whom we have said farewell to this past year, and all those others whom we have had to say farewell to in all the years of our lives. To us, as Jesus says, this meal is in fact life everlasting. Because this meal, body and blood of our Lord, bread of heaven, come down. This meal, is where heaven and earth touch. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Amen.